This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 402, The End of the World. So, we're continuing our look at ways in which the saucer lives of various people had interesting intersections with the more mundane aspects of their lives. Last time, we saw some of the earliest interaction between the saucer world and that of the national broadcast media, and today we're going to be starting a look at a journey that began in 1954 and fell off of most people's radars by the middle of 1955 before coming back onto some people's radars sometime in 1956. We're talking about a prediction of the end of the world given by a woman named Dorothy Martin and spread hither and yon by a man named Dr. Charles Lothhead, spelled L-A-U-G-H-E-A-D. I am almost certainly mispronouncing that, but uh, Lothhead is what I'm going with. As we explore this story, we'll be revisiting some strands from some of our past encounters. We'll see glimpses of Georgia Damsky. Gray Barker is going to make an appearance, as will Jim Mosley. We'll have a cameo from Adamski's loyal Detroit shill, Laura Mundo. We'll see what happened to George Hunt Williamson. And we'll also encounter one of the first and one of the most lasting and significant sociological examinations of flying saucer belief. Most importantly, we're going to see how a saucer life can jeopardize aspects of someone's real life and how it can come to dominate a life so fully that it's incomprehensible to those around them. I hesitate to explain the origins of my examination of the story uh, here because it makes me feel very, very stupid. So back in graduate school, I quickly skim-read a book called When Prophecy Fails by Leon Festinger, Henry Rieken, and Stanley Schachter. This was a sociological study of a flying saucer cult that predicted the end of the world and was originally published in 1956. It was connected to the time period my thesis was covering, but the cult religious angle was slightly outside the ballpark of what I was focused on, so I set it aside and moved on in other directions. I realized later that it was an absolute classic, but I never did read it as carefully as I should have. Story of my life. So fast forward to last August, when I started work on the zine scene episodes from our first series. I came across a story in Gray Barker's Saucerian magazine about an end-of-the-world cult involving Dorothy Martin and Charles Lothhead. Throwing those names into my Google machine, I realized this story, which had caught my attention as possible podcast fodder, was the same story told in When Prophecy Fails. You see, the sociologists had insisted on using fake names for everybody involved, fake names for the locations, and it had worked because I had not put these two events together. So then I started looking into the story, and I began finding more and more that it connected to other saucer topics, so much so that I kept pushing this topic down the line because I felt there were things I needed to cover a bit before we got to it. The second thing that happened, and this was just pure serendipity, is that a couple of months ago, I filed a pair of Freedom Inf Information Act requests with the FBI. One was on George Adamski, and one was on Laura Mundo. I got the Adamski file, or what they told me was the Adamski file, and it seemed to be 
not all there, and it was heavily focused around Adamski's connections to the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. And another researcher I know had had the exact same thing happen, which is just weird. The fascinating thing is that there were dozens of pages in that file relating to this story. Some of them not even connected to Adamski in any way, and I'm not sure how they ended up here. It's very weird. So with that preamble out of the way, let's strap in, because it's the end of the world. Dorothy Martin, who lived in Chicago, had long been interested in occult and spiritualist topics, beginning with the field of theosophy and moving into the world of L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics movement in the late 1940s. She told the authors of When Prophecy Fails, quote, I prefer to call it Scientology, which is the art and science of taking someone back as far in his life as he can go. My friends have helped me take myself back to the period of my birth. In fact, even before my birth, I can remember the day I was conceived, end quote. Around the same time, she began to develop an interest in flying saucers. In April 1954, Dorothy began to receive messages via automatic writing. The first messages came from someone called the Elder Brother. Later emanations would come from the planet Clarion. You remember Clarion, right? It's the home of Aura Rains. One of Martin's key contacts would be Sananda, uh, also known as Sananda Jesus, who we remember from our adventures with Ashtar and his pals. And one of the first messages from the elder brother on April 18th was actually pretty nice and comforting. I am always with you. The cares of the day cannot touch you. We will teach them that seek and are ready to follow in the light. I will take care of the details. Trust in us. The lovely loved ones, every single word of the gold script is from my hand. Be patient and learn. For we are there, too, preparing the work for you. That is an earthly liaison duty before I come. That will be soon. You are directed to tell your experiences of my coming to you, for it prepares the way in their hearts. I will come again to teach each of you. They that have told you that they do not believe shall see us when the time is right. So Dorothy was being prepared for a mission. That same day, Easter Sunday, 1954, she received other transmissions, including one from Sananda about the planet Clarion. I will tell you something of it. It is a beautiful place to live. We have weather, snow, and rain. We adjust our bodies to the temperature. There is light. See it and be enlightened. The light of the world is the two poles of force that is called life. The light of the world is the focal point of light, which is the opposite of darkness or ignorance. The love one has for his brother on this abased planet is very felonious. The saucers are over West Virginia, taking listings of the world's industrial people that make war material and profit from war assets. They are going to land and make contact with you people of Earth in May. The irresponsible will write such writing that will anchor the unbelieving. It may be June when they land in West Virginia. Just a quick note, I've edited the channeled messages we're hearing today for brevity. I've also taken the liberty of correcting obvious typos. So if you find transcripts and they don't match up exactly, it's because I some of these things are really, really long. So we've got messages from Clarion. We've got messages from a planet called Ceres. 
a lot of it is explaining the nature of the planet. A lot of it is very similar to what we hear from both the Ashtar channelers of the early 1950s, as well as, as some of the messages received by Mark Probert that um, started in the late 1940s and early 1950s as well. But by the summer of 1954, Dorothy began recording messages that foretold of danger and destruction, such as this message from an entity called Justine, recorded on July 30th, 1954. The time is ready, for the day is near, nearer than you care to know. To the government we teach these things, yet they race onward to the danger of the past. It is as in the water deluge, that which you have been taught was of 40 days, the planet and beneath the waters of earth, which you know not of. The earth is in the womb of the cosmic mother. The membrane was punctured, the earth aborted. To this we add that the people of earth are rushing, rushing, rushing towards suicide of themselves. Go tell earthlings that it is the bewitching hour. To each say, write the communicator of news, each in his own way, add his voice to the voice of the peacemakers. On August 2nd, the warnings became more dire. With regard to the terminology here, Dorothy Martin's contacts used the word cast to mean both a broadcast and also a sort of manifestation. At least that's what I make of it. I've tried to make these selections as clear as possible, but not promising anything. Here's Sananda. The day is coming when your service of love will be needed. In the day of the resurrection or evacuation to the casting of love, it must be for all, not a listing of the chosen few, but each as he is in the place in which he is. It is cast that the cast of the earthling will awaken to the lake seething and the great destruction of the tall buildings of the local city. The lake bed is sinking to the degree that it will be as a great scoop of wind from the bottom of the lake throughout the countryside. So a little refresher and a little, co a little context. By 1954, as you'll recall from previous episodes, if you haven't listened to them, shame on you, go listen to them, contactees predicted disaster. But this disaster tended to be a sort of consequence of failure to change our behavior um, and usually had to do with war. It was hypothetical. If we don't turn from the horrors of war, especially atomic war, then we're doomed. These messages to Dorothy Martin seem different to me. There are specific locations mentioned. Martin lived in the greater Chicago suburban area, so there's clearly something that's going to happen to Lake Michigan here. A couple of weeks later, on August 15th, Sananda transmitted another message, which offered a possibility of a way out. While it is yet time to let them have it to ponder on and to be prepared, is to prevent the greatest catastrophe in the present cycle, in warning and preparing the mind of man for the great event of this coming. There will be the picking up of the ones who will be prepared. This is a close date. Ten days later, a contact named Sarah clarified that the upcoming disaster would not be limited to Chicago. This is not limited to the local area, for the country of the USA is to break in twain in the area of the Mississippi and the region of the Canada, Great Lakes, and the Mississippi, to the Gulf of Mexico, into the Central America will be changed. The great tilting of the land of the US to the east will throw up mountains along the central states, along the Great New Sea, 
along the north and south. The new mountain range will be called the Argonne Range, which will signify the ones who have been there are gone. The old has gone past. The new is. This will be a monument to the old races. By August 27th, the threat had spread beyond the United States. The risen land will be as the new mountain range of the east, which will be as cold as Rainier and as the rugged place which has appeared in the great mountains of Nepal. The mountain range will extend to the equator. The land of England will be as nothing seen. The land of France to the bottom of the Atlantic. Russia will be as the sea of one which is now called the Black Sea, extending to the Mediterranean, and to the north it will ebb as one into the icy land of Siberia. As Dorothy Martin was transcribing her otherworldly communications and building a group of followers in her suburban Chicago home, Dr. Charles Lothhead and his wife Lillian were in East Lansing, Michigan, doing much the same thing. Charles and Lillian had served as medical missionaries in the past and now back in the States since the late 1940s were active in their local Episcopal church. Charles, in particular, led a Bible study group that over time had broadened its focus to examine comparative religious traditions. In fact, the focus had broadened so much, including broadening into some of the spiritualist traditions we've discussed in previous episodes, that the church asked Charles to very kindly move the study group off church property. He continued leading the group in his home, it's called the Quest Group, and he recruited members not only from the church, but also from the college community at Michigan State College, now Michigan State University. The Lawfeds were also becoming interested in the accounts of contactees, such as George Adamski. Um, Charles went to California to visit Adamski um, in the early 1950s. Lillian went with him, and actually Lillian would be involved in attempting to interpret the plaster cast of Orthon's footprint that was supposedly left in the desert. So they're deeply connected to Adamski's ideas. And this interest in the saucer scene brought Charles and Lillian into contact, no pun intended, with Dorothy Martin, who had also been in contact with George Adamski. So Charles, on August 30th, 1954, just a few days after we start seeing the really dire predictions of disaster from Dorothy, Charles sends a packet of transcriptions of these channelings to newspaper editors around the country, along with a letter. August 30th, 1954. Open letter to American editors and publishers. Gentlemen, there has come into my hands information of such colossal nature that, if it be accepted as true, it throws the science fiction stories into eclipse and cannot but hold the most profound significance for us who dwell upon this planet. Since the messages come via extrasensory perception, this in itself may be startling to some. Though I may be tagged as being completely psychopathic for considering that these things could even have the faintest semblance of truth, this is of no particular concern to me. It is rather with a great sense of urgency that we are getting this story into the hands of American publishers that they may do the choosing to accept or reject, to file in the wastebasket or to print. It is presented on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. The words are not mine. The authority behind them is not mine. My commission is to get the story out and help prepare the people for coming events. I have, accordingly, put the essence of the thing into a story. The excerpts are only a few from a large volume of lessons which have come through and which will be appearing in book form in the near future. 
The story is presented for publication with no strings attached, but only with the profound hope that perhaps a few may be moved to act. And there you have it, gentlemen. May you be wisely led in your choosing. Sincerely yours, Charles A. Lawfed, M.D. So he follows that letter with a, a brief narrative, or story as he calls it, connecting the current predictions of disaster to the demise of lost civilizations of Mu and Atlantis. He uses some quotations from the Gospel of Luke to bolster the notion that 1954 was the end times. He explicitly connects uh, the messages that Dorothy is receiving from Sananda to the messages proclaimed by Jesus of Nazareth in the first century, in the, the time of the Gospels. He continues with a rundown of flying saucer contacts, asserting that, quote, saucers are real and notwithstanding denials have landed at Muroc Air Base in California, Desert Center, California, and White Sands, New Mexico, end quote. The Muroc story we're familiar with from our encounters with the Borderland Science Research Associates, Desert Center is a reference to Adamski's initial sighting, and White Sands, New Mexico, was the location of contactee Daniel Fry's encounter. He introduces Dorothy Martin's transmissions, including this explanation of how she receives messages, as well as a meeting with, maybe, perhaps, one of the visitors. Almost daily, the pencil writes as Mrs. Martin sits for the lesson. She has been told that she is enrolled in a university on a planet named Ceres in the galaxy of stars, of which the North Star is a member. Those who write are teachers of very high evolvement, beaming the earth with lessons for those who are to help in the new age. Others, too, are enrolled, and Mrs. Martin sends the lessons on to them for study. The class is growing. On August 1st, a group of 12 friends were directed to go to O'Hare Field to watch for a possible saucer sighting. As they picnicked along the road, watching jets take off, a man appeared out of nowhere along the road. Mrs. Martin walked up to him and asked, Would you like something to eat? No, thank you, he replied, and then she came back to the group. As suddenly as he came, he was gone. A little while later, the pencil wrote, It was I, Sananda, whom you said unto, Eat and drink. For if it were as a knight in shining armor I came, the glory would have overshone the deed. To you, the recorder, it is love of each. The comely, the stalwart, the weak, the spaceman alike. So they were sitting at the side of the road, having a picnic, watching the planes land at O'Hare. A guy shows up, refuses a sandwich. This is clearly an extraterrestrial encounter. Lothhead sent a second batch of material to editors around the United States on September 17th, and in his letter um, attached to them, he's cranking up the anticipation on the time of upheaval to come. September 17, 1954. American editors, publishers, and friends. As a sequel to An Amazing Prophecy, the following additional material may be of interest to some who have read the above. To make it easy, let us say we are all actors on the world stage and have played many roles in many plays. Some comic, some dramatic. We are also the audience, and know not the plot. Two thousand years ago, we played the scenes of the time of Jesus. And now, as Sananda, the great director, is to put on the final show of the season, the actors have forgotten their lines and the parts they played in the old plays. Only a few have been reminded of the parts they played 2,000 years ago. Today's play is played in darkness. The actors' heads are covered with a black cape which was used as a robe of one dead. 
To this, the audience looked for the answer in the time when it was still light. But let us cast the act in reality, for the director knows the plot. The scene is Chicago in the Midwest. The date is December 21st, 1954. As the scene opens, it is dawn but still dark. The actors are awakened to the sound of a terrible rumbling. The earth shakes, the tall buildings topple, the waters of Lake Michigan rise in a terrific wave which covers the city and spreads east to Lake Erie. A new river forms and flows from the lake to the Gulf of Mexico. Glad are the actors who have awaited the coming of the Guardians. Amid the cries of anguish, the question is heard, why didn't someone tell us that we might have moved to safety? But in the days of the warnings, they were told of the safe places, the eastern slopes of the Rockies, the Catskills and the Allegheny Mountains. But they said, it can't happen here. It can happen in Assam or Tibet or Algeria or Japan, but not here. And so the curtain falls on this act. Charles Lawfett, M.D., 407 Clarendon Road, East Lansing, Michigan. I like to think that Charles throwing in the phrase, the coming of the Guardians, is sort of a, uh, a callback to the Borderlands Science Research Associates and, uh, and Mead Lane's book of the same name. It might be. I'm not sure. But given... The interests given the means of communication, the psychic and psychical and spiritualist elements of this, I wouldn't be surprised if if that was sort of a paranormal Easter egg, if there is such a thing. So in November of 54, one of the FBI's informants forwarded the entire pile of predictions and Charles's promotional materials to the FBI office in Detroit. The informant is a man named Harold Thompson, who has been asked by a Mr. O'Gara to send the material. November 18, 1954. To Mr. R.B. Smith, Special Agent, FBI, 913 Federal Building, Detroit, Michigan. Dear Mr. Smith, the enclosed copies of literature in my hands is being sent to you at the request of Mr. O'Gara. In each instance, the stuff is mimeographed. The literature put out under the name of Dr. Lawhead has his name and address stamped at the top, and it's signed by him. The other literature has no signature or no letter heading. There is some merit to the religious aspects invoked, but I sense a doctrine of fear interwoven in the material, and a doctrine of complacency, both of which could possibly have an effect of neutralizing our young people on basic Americanism. My understanding with Mr. O'Gara was that my son, from whom I got this material, would not be approached or involved except through me. He was just recently drawn into this because of his interest in flying saucers. He's just finished five years in the Army. I lost my other son last year on duty as a jet fighter pilot. I don't want to lose this one through what could be construed as meddling on my part. On the other hand, it is not at all impossible that he could be enlisted to assist us, and certainly you can count upon me to do anything within my capacity. I may be unduly alarmed, but I do not like the thought that flying saucer classes have been started on the campuses of many universities, and that this stuff is being disseminated through them. You are best able to determine whether I am over-suspicious or not. For credentials, I was the Chief Assistant Secretary of State of Michigan for two years, was Detroit's first interracial director, and served three terms on the Executive Council of the Episcopal Diocese of Michigan. I mentioned this merely to avoid being labeled a crackpot. If I can serve you further, please do not hesitate to call upon me. Very truly yours, Harold Thompson. 
from what I was able to find, uh, our Mr. Thompson here was the public relations officer of the Detroit Trust Company, and from both his letter and corroborating information I've seen was not some kind of hysterical anti-communist. This is an interesting letter. There's critique of some of the theological aspects of the Martin ideas, but these critiques are rooted in a very Eisenhower-era concern about Americanism. Most striking, I think, is, is the personal aspect, Thompson's fear for his son's involvement and not wanting to alienate him through meddling, but on the other hand, maybe he can get us some more information about these guys. As far as what action the Bureau took, uh, the only information in the files that I was possibly mistakenly sent when I asked for something else is a handwritten scrawled note in the margin dated January of 1955 indicating that they had contacted um, Mr. Thompson to follow up and that he'd had no further information. So as we get into the autumn of 1954, as December 21st is growing closer. The law feds and some of their students are spending more time in Chicago with Dorothy Martin and her students. When Prophecy Fails goes into great detail about the interpersonal workings of these groups and conflicts between members, but for our purposes, if we get into that, we'll be here for the next three days. The important thing for us is that by November, late November, early December, the Lothheads are spending a lot of time in Chicagoland, often leaving their children behind in East Lansing, with the youngest, who's in, I think, junior high aged or so, leaving her in the care of other members of their spiritualist study group, which is concerning to some people. Similarly, Lothheads' supposed proselytization of students at Michigan State College was causing problems. Reports vary, but by mid-December, Lothhead had resigned, either of his own volition or because he was formally asked to resign. The resignation was announced in papers via the Associated Press on December 16th. End of world, doctor plays it safe, once balance of December pay. Dateline December 16th, 1954, East Lansing, Michigan. A prediction that the world will come to an end December 21st became a matter of official business yesterday before the State Board of Agriculture, governing body of Michigan State College. Dr. John A. Hanna, Michigan State College president, reported to the board that Dr. Charles A. Lawfed, a staff physician at the college hospital, had submitted his resignation because of his belief the world will end December 21st. Dr. Lawfed had been at MSC since June 15, 1948. I first heard about this business from a delegation of students who came to me, Dr. Hanna told the board. They said Dr. Lafed had been holding meetings in his home and teaching the beliefs of some peculiar religious sect. Dr. Hanna said the group believes the world will end December 21st and that flying saucers from Venus or Mars, Dr. Hanna wasn't sure which, would rescue some of the survivors. We understand Dr. Lafed is disposing of his possessions and is getting ready to move to some mountaintop to await rescue, the president said. Dr. Hanna and Dr. Lafed acknowledged holding the meetings attended by college students and that his resignation, quote, was agreed upon. We told Dr. Lafed that his religious beliefs were his own business, but we didn't like some of the students being upset, the MSC president said. He was perfectly willing to resign and seemed concerned about getting his pay immediately for the balance of the month of December. Dr. Hanna said that as far as he knew, there were no other faculty members belonging to the sect. He said he believed only a few students were seriously interested, and said he knew of none quitting school to await the predicted end of the world. 
I did hear some student made a down payment on a Cadillac. He figured he wouldn't have to make the rest of the payments and wanted to enjoy it while he could. Members of his family said Dr. Lawhead was out and unavailable for comment. They refused to discuss the matter further. So that story makes it sound like Lawfed resigned his position at the college because the world was going to end and he wouldn't need a job. A story published the next day in a different paper from a different wire service gave the impression that that was not the case and that Lawfed resigned because he was requested to resign because his teachings had the potential to upset students and, in the words of Dr. Hanna in this article might affect their coursework negatively because they were upset about this end-of-the-world stuff that was happening. The material about Lawhead selling his possessions and going to some mountaintop somewhere, that doesn't appear other places that I've seen. So, the end is coming. We're getting close. On December 20, the day before the cataclysms that are supposed to signal the start of the larger disaster that's going to end the world sometime in 1955, we see a newspaper interview with Dorothy Martin, the person who'd been receiving the messages. Prophet of Doom sticks to cataclysm forecast. December 20th, 1954. Mrs. Dorothy Martin, prophet of doom for millions, remained calm today on the eve of the cataclysm she says will befall the continent. Mrs. Martin, who lives in suburban Oak Park, predicted last September that water would engulf much of the land between the Arctic Circle and the Gulf of Mexico December 21st. She said also that the West Coast would be submerged from Seattle to Chile. There has been no change in my original prophecy, she said, but we are waiting further word. Mrs. Martin's story of things to come, she says, was received from a planet named Clarion in outer space. Mrs. Martin declined to predict what she will be doing tomorrow, but she told a reporter, I will be tomorrow. I have assurance of being. I am making no plans and formulating no ideas. Visiting Mrs. Martin today was Dr. Charles Lawfed, whose acceptance of her prophecy led to loss of his job as the student health staff of Michigan State College. Dr. Lawhead made only this comment to a newsman who telephoned him. I have nothing more to predict. If I have anything else to say, I'll send it over to you. December 20th became December 21st, and news reporters stayed on the story. Space Sears tidal wave due today. December 21st, 1954, Oak Park, Illinois. As the hours ticked away tonight and the clock hands inched their way along, all was still and calm in the home of Mrs. Dorothy Martin. Thin, dark-haired Mrs. Martin was still sticking to her prophecy that the Midwest would be inundated Tuesday by a great flood spreading from the Arctic Circle to the Gulf of Mexico. Mrs. Martin said calmly that she had just received an invitation to attend a cocktail party in a Chicago bar that would continue, quote, until the world ends. That is typical of the moronic calls I've been getting, she said. We have to expect that. The we includes several followers, among them Dr. Charles Lawhead, a physician who was forced to resign from Michigan State College because of his belief in flying saucers. All of Mrs. Martin's information comes to her from outer space and the planet Clarion. Without so much as a space helmet, Mrs. Martin gets this dope from the same guys who are, she says, swishing around the earth and flying saucers. Chicago stores have reported no run on such marine items as lifeboats, 
life rafts, or water wings. And then, shockingly, miraculously, maybe, an earthquake struck Eureka, California, waking and disturbing thousands of people and causing heavy damage in the city. Um, According to news reports, there were... 7,500 people living in the city, and nearly every building and home was damaged. So, tidal waves, inundation, floods, destruction, catastrophe, signaling the end of everything. On the very day this is to happen, a sizable earthquake hits in California. Was the end coming? In our next encounter, we will see what happens next the effects on the players involved, and the reaction of the Flying Saucer community. You can follow along with us at SaucerLife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius. It also featured Roberta Evangeline Straith as the voices of space beings Justine and Sarah. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.